0: Welcome to the CTL Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every week I'll be sharing an interview with a top engineering leader. Firstly, I want to thank AWS, who are our exclusive, ultimate partner, and without whom we couldn't run our summits or the business. AWS offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Reach out to aws-ctl-program at amazon.com if you're interested in learning more about their offerings. I'd also like to thank Code Climate, our sustaining partner. Code Climate is now offering full access to Velocity free for 45 days to the CTO Connection community. Velocity turns data from GitHub and Bitbucket into insights that improve the visibility of engineering work so that your team can stay aligned as they adapt to a distributed workflow. Check it out at codeclimate.com slash CTO Connection and use access code CTO Connection. I'd also like to thank our other sponsors, including Andela, Bugsnag, CircleCI, iTechArt, Carrot, LaunchDarkly, and Optimizely for their continued support during these difficult times. And now on with the show. Today, I'm speaking with Shannon Hogue, Global Head of Solution Engineering at Carrot. Shannon, thanks so much for taking the time to speak today.
1: Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: So... Usually, with guests, we kind of go through a lot of the backstory, but I really want to dive straight into the information you have. Obviously, at Carrot, you're experts on helping people to do a better job of creating technical interviews. And obviously, the experience now is changing. A lot of people are working from home, often for the first time. So, I'd love to spend most of the session really just digging into advice you could give for people who are starting to get used to the new normal and they're like, oh, I still need more candidates. I've still got to do interviews. How do you do interviews effectively without the office? What would be some of your first advice to somebody who's trying to figure out how to do a better job of interviewing now that they are perhaps working from home?
1: Yeah, There's a a lot of folks who are trying to work with us these days have that same exact question and they come to us a little bit nervous because it's still business as usual and they need to continue to meet their hiring goals. And so it's my job at CARE to help companies develop a structured interview process that aligns their hiring bars, identifies and assesses core competencies and gets the most predictive signal out of each interview. And we need to do that at at scale. So we do that through remote interviews. So today, I think that best way to do that is just talk about kind of the top three things that we suggest in order to start conducting remote interviews at scale.
0: Great. What are the top three things somebody should think about?
1: Yeah, the top three things are defining competencies, reviewing your interviewers and consistently measuring performance.
0: Interesting. So if we start off with defining competencies, so let's say somebody's hiring, you know, mid-level Java developers something like that, What are some of the competencies that you should think about?
1: Yeah, so one big problem with code tests and remote interviews is that candidates don't know what's being assessed and how it's measured. And interviewers are assessing more than one competency at a time. So try and figure out exactly what a candidate needs to be successful on the job and develop a question that tests that exact thing. Otherwise, you're going to get more noise than signal. And try and avoid ambiguity. If you want them to optimize code, say so. If you want them to test it, tell them. You're assessing competencies, not mind reading, especially in a remote interview, right? (laughs) Where you don't have the same level of in-person communications.
0: That makes a a lot of sense. So it's a matter of being really granular with the competencies. I mean, could you give some examples from rubrics you've seen before? uh, How many competencies might you have and, and how granular? What would be an example of a couple of competencies?
1: Yeah, so we actually support a wide range of technical competencies because we focus on technical interviewing. And so we focus anywhere from having Uh, knowledge questions about React or, you know, JavaScript, all the way to three-part coding questions. And we set expectations during each of these exercises beforehand. But we also do have measurements around communication. And we've had a lot of internal discussion around what is good communication? What does that mean? How granular should we get? So that all of us have that same rubric when we're doing the measurement. For us, it's, it's really about consistency. So now we do that through having you know, a full eight weeks of onboarding for our interview process and so on. But it's not something that people can't do internally.
0: Interesting. So when you talk about communication, what would be some examples of specific competencies that you might test for in a developer candidate in terms of their capacity to communicate?
1: Yeah. So in our interviews, we always start trying to make the candidate feel more comfortable. So we start with something like a a project discussion or a little bit of a background story to get them warm and ready to discuss technology. And then during the knowledge questions around the technology or the coding questions, what we're looking for is clarity of speech. So, you know, how well the interview engineer understood the words that the candidate spoke, for example. Also, the quality of their explanation were they organized and succinct or were they difficult to understand? we also look into comprehension. So how well did the candidate understand the interview engineer that was interviewing them? Um, and then any kind of interaction standouts, Were they did they have notable interpersonal skills or did they have a poor interaction?
0: Interesting. And then when you think about, for example, with communications, the communications, the comprehension part, how do you think about clarifying questions? Do you generally see that as a good thing? Because They ask the questions required to get a a solid understanding, or do you see that as a lack of capacity to understand from the initial description?
1: It's the former. So certainly we we definitely want folks to be asking clarifying questions. Um, It it shows a bit about, you know, the level of involvement they've had in a project. If it was a project discussion, it also makes sure that they're comfortable in their answers. And we also have an entire section of our site that's dedicated for the candidate experience and inside of their best practices around you know, doing well in the carrot interview. And in those instructions, there is an FAQ question around, should I ask clarifying questions? And the answer is resoundingly, yes, absolutely. Make sure that you ask a question so that we know that you understand the problem and then they work forward from there.
0: Nice. Now, I know that a lot of companies have relatively informal interview processes. What's the, what are the challenges that you see them running into where it's just like, oh, just pair with somebody for half an hour and we'll kind of give you you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, do that with three people, and then we'll decide whether or not to give you a job.
1: Oh, gosh, you know, talk about my entire life. I've been (laughs) doing this and hiring engineers for over 23 years and asking the same three questions over time. And actually, that's one of the reasons that I I was excited about working at Carrot. Part of the reason I'm so excited about the product is that it is critical to the hiring process that it's a measurable experience. We're all taught as developers to make data-driven decisions. And I've always been limited in my job as a manager to actually have measurable and actionable data from the interview piece itself. And so I think a lot of us find ourselves in a place where our developers are going into a room with a potential candidate and the door shuts and you have no idea what's going on. You know, they're going to ask some coding questions. There hasn't been a lot of preparation or training because of course we have products to get out the door and you have to balance that. And then, you know, these folks come out and you get one side of the story and you hope that You know, you've done everything that you can, but at the end of the day, there is no actionable or measurable feedback. And so for us, you know, I think the most important thing is to be able to measure performance consistently. Right. So imagine two folks go into a room. One person may say, oh, I really like that person. I like their personality. And the other person would say, oh, that's a really strong candidate. If you have 12 different interviewers who say the candidate is okay or strong or pretty good, it's a lot harder to pin down a hiring signal. So what you need to do and what we do at Carrot is we structure, have a, create a structured scoring rubric so that everyone is evaluating on the same scale and speaking the same language. And this will help you create a consistent hiring bar across your offer sites, homes, countries, or wherever your hiring managers may be.
0: Now, when you start to work with things like coding challenges, have you found a A right size for a given code and challenge? Do you find that it's easier to get signal from a lot of, here's a little bit of code, please refactor it or write some tests in five minutes versus take an hour, do something with this and and tell me what you're thinking along the way? How do you focus primarily on lots of little challenges or one or two bigger ones?
1: Right. So we have a one hour interview process. um, And I think You know, what we're talking about here is just kind of technical interviews uh, versus coding challenges, right? Um, For us, what we found is in order to measure um, first that we need to make sure that all the coding evaluations that we're doing are created equal, at least if we're measuring them across multiple folks. I think the second piece to this is is really what we do is a three-part coding question. And so we work with uh, folks during the one-hour interview process, not just getting them warmed up with the project discussion and the knowledge questions, but then we move into a three-part coding question where questions get a little bit more difficult over time, right? So that first question may be very basic. The second question will, you know, introduce some more advanced maybe data structures or algorithms. And that third question really is kind of the culmination of those first two questions leading up. Um, that gives us, as long as it's consistent across the different interviews, we have an entire catalog of three-part coding questions that are equal. Um, as long as it's consistent uh, across the board, then you can actually measure that performance. Little snippets here and there, it can be a little bit difficult to set rubrics or, or give kind of you know, data-driven feedback in order to have some sort of you know, a rubric or a scale that you could be working with moving forward.
0: Now, something I find even just as an educator, this isn't in interviewing at all, which is that when you give students multiple problems that build on previous problems, the risk is that somebody makes a misunderstanding on the first piece and then suddenly they don't have the starting point for the others. So, do you have a process in place that you use where you kind of get an ideal solution for phase one when you go into phase two? Or how do you mitigate the fact that somebody might make one stupid mistake in part one? and then simply not even get to parts two or three?
1: Yeah, so at Carrot, um, you know, this, I think, you know, for us, we consider this a question about kind of unbalanced questions, right? So, really, what we we make sure is that we have a we have a standard rubric. So, when we work with uh, with our clients, what we do is we work with them to figure out what their hiring bar is, and then we we have a, a standard rubric based on what that hiring bar is. And part of that is how far that they get through that three part coding question, and then we look at the performance of all the candidates that are, that are coming through over time, and then what the results are on site, for example. And so, for us. How, how we get around that is, you know, if if somebody comes in and we have a consistent first question that's pretty simple, and they may have gone a direction that wasn't, con- you know, conducive to answering the second question in time, um, usually it's not going to set them too far off because a question jumping from one to two is just a, a small little hop, right? But we have an entire product team that's dedicated to doing this. And so I think for us, we, we do have kind of a, a, an opportunity to work with folks where we know what they're signal was previously, you know, their known quantity and so on.
0: Makes sense. So we talked a bunch about defining competencies, which which is obviously the baseline. But then you said that the second of the three things was reviewing interviewers. So how do you go about instigating a, a system for reviewing the quality of interviewers and for training them, quite frankly?
1: Yeah. So You know, obviously, our interview engineers get better with practice, but we also quality control their performance with mentors. We help coach them to be better over time and to be careful of bias inducing hand holding and to give the right amount of assistance or hints when appropriate. And so, one really amazing advantage, and and unfortunately, um, that's happening is that, uh, you know, all of these interviews that we're doing and we're seeing our clients do are remote. And the advantage of doing a remote interview is that you're videotaping the interviews uh, and you can. Record them. And, you know, usually you're recording and people look at the candidate, but you can use those videos to assess uh, and review and coach your interviewers on how to get better.
0: Nice. And then, are there some common things that you find that most kind of new or naive interviewers commonly do wrong? What are like the three or four most common things that you see that you have to coach interviewers on?
1: Yeah. So the number one would be just, you know, how much time to spend saying hello making sure that you're you're moving forward in the interview process so that people have a chance to answer their questions uh, another piece that most folks are really interested in especially our clients is how much hand holding do you give and what's a proper way to actually handhold or help a candidate move forward? Because you know, inevitably candidates will get stuck or they'll have clarifying questions. But you don't want to inject your own bias in the conversation, and you certainly won't don't want to direct them uh, in a different direction. Just because you're there to assess their core competencies, not yours. And so that's one thing that I think is really important. Um, I think the last is really just making sure that they're constantly understanding exactly what that rubric is exactly how to assess because if we're talking about having you know an uh, you know consistent and and you know bar and set of measurement and performance metrics, then we need to make sure that folks are consistently being you know, trained and assessed on whether or not they know how to measure in that manner. And so for us, you know, setting a consistent bar, but then having them run, you know, do their interviews and having a second party come in and review and give them feedback and whether or not they are consistent to that measure, then that's what's worked really well for us.
0: And now some exclusive offers from our partners. Amazon Web Services offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Partnering with CTL Connection, AWS is now offering an exclusive program to our listeners. The program includes up to $100,000 of AWS credits, a free consulting session with an AWS solution architect to review your environment, your strategies, and optimize your costs, and other resources to help you to get started on migrating to AWS. If you're interested in learning more, please reach out to aws-cto-program at amazon.com. To lend a hand to those ramping up remote engineering processes... Cold Climate is offering the CTO Connection community 45 days of full access to their engineering analytics application, no strings attached. Velocity turns SCM data into actionable insights so leaders can get visibility into the speed, capacity, and output of their newly distributed teams. Your 45-day package will include access to the full capabilities of the Velocity Professional package, a consultation with a product specialist who will map your key initiatives to data, and a training session for engineering managers and executives about how to interpret and apply this data in a way that engenders trust. Code Climate hopes that this will equip engineering leadership to take on a new set of challenges in the weeks ahead. To request access, head to codeclimate.com slash ctlconnection and use the code CTO Connection. You said there were three things at a high level, was defining competencies, reviewing interviewers, but then there's looking at the performance, which is presumably how well the candidates do once they join the team?
1: So Carrot conducted a couple of months ago a survey of over 250 engineering leaders in the United States, and we looked at the traits of the folks who were satisfied with their hires. Uh, and then later on, they're satisfied with their hires' performance over time. And when we took a deeper look at those companies and their interviews, we noticed that overwhelmingly the folks that were more performant and more confident were the ones that were tracking more hi- hiring pipeline metrics during the interview process. Now, for us at Carrot, we do take a look at the entire hiring funnel all the way to the onsite to offer ratio and we utilize those metrics in our reporting to our clients. And, and that's a measurement to figure out how well we're adjusting, not just to, you know, hitting the onsite to offer ratios that they see, but potentially, you know, um, uh, increasing the performance of that of that pipeline. And so an example would be, you know, usually your on-site to offer rates, it's at about 5%. But as you start to have more and more metrics and inputs, and you start to see the signal of what's indicative of success in that onsite interview process, you can start to change the weights of each of those individual metrics in order to maximize that hiring funnel. And so really, the suggestion from us is, again, just have a consistent rubric, understand what you're measuring, and make sure to take a look at that hiring signal after that person's been hired and see what pieces were indicative of success over time. As long as you have a defined rubric, you should be able to do that.
0: Makes sense. Thanks so much for that. So when we think about uh, companies that are moving right now from maybe in-person interview processes to, to starting to do things online, some things immediately come to mind, especially if they're doing things like whiteboarding interviews. What do you do? Like, how do you replace the whiteboard in a remote interview?
1: Yeah, that's really a difficult question for a lot of folks because they're used to bringing people on site and having discussions um, you know, one thing that we've learned is not many people are set up to be able to do whiteboarding remotely. You know, you have to have if you have whiteboarding software, you should have a tablet and potentially a pen. And most folks actually don't have that apart part of their home office. And so what we did is we actually will stick to a project discussion or potentially system design questions that they can answer remotely without having to actually draw on a board to answer them.
0: And then how do you think about things like video versus no video? Because I know some candidates are still a little uncomfortable with video conferencing. Uh, how important is it to visually be able to see the person that you're interviewing?
1: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, I think it's most important that the candidate is comfortable. You know, there are, you know, some concerns from clients that if you can't see a candidate, that potentially they could cheat. But, you know, Overall, we really need to respect a candidate's wishes and they can certainly have the option to opt out of video. And I don't think that's something that you should require is that they should have to perform on video. Now, if you if it's something where you want to do an ID check and you do that in the beginning and then they want to turn the video off because they they don't want you to see them kind of scrambling when you ask them questions. I think that's okay. I think you do little you lose a little bit of that interpersonal signal. However, Uh, it's already really difficult to do remote interviews for some folks who are, you know, highly like tactile, right? They want to see people and, and, and feel them. And, and actually I've heard that folks who are interviewing remote, who are used to interviewing in person, find themselves being a lot more objective about candidates because they haven't built that personal bond. So it's not to say you can't have a personal bond and it's not to say you should require video, but I think there's this happy medium Uh, when you're interviewing remotely, where you do want to see that person, but you should respect, you know, their wishes so that they can be set up for success. You know, at Carrot, you know, we talk a lot with our clients about, you know, giving them the opportunity to be their best selves.
0: Makes sense. And then you mentioned a little bit of cheating. Like, how do you think about what are some of the baseline things you consider for kind of cheating detection? Do you, do you have systems for that?
1: We do. So we do use the moss detection, um, which was built back in 1994 by Stanford. Uh, so there's a lot of folks out there that are using moss detection for, you know, I think originally um, it was built to, to make sure nobody was, you know, stealing code off the Internet. But we we actually also use that live. And so we use the moss detection algorithm, which helps in our pair coding environment. And, and I believe there are quite a few pair coding environments out there that can be used. We have our own like, but there's also CoderPad, coder pad, for example. Um the second piece is we we train our interview engineers to listen um you know most people who are going to work through a, an actual question, we'll have a discussion with you. Okay, now I'm thinking about this position. Okay, now I'm thinking to answer that. Hey, I want to have a clarifying question. How is this? If you hear whispering, or if somebody goes on mute <laughs> for a very long amount of time, it's probably, you know, indicative. If you see code that just shows up automatically, it's probably also an indicative. Um, you know, it's, we do let candidates, uh, you know, on the flip side, we do let candidates actually search and so if they're looking for something really quickly, you know, they're using Python and they've just forgot the name of the method, that's okay, uh, because they can do that on the job. So why not let them do that in the interview? But, you know, there are some pretty clear indications of of cheating out there. So
0: Got it. What makes you, you've talked a lot about the interview engineers. If I've got a dev team and I'm trying to figure out who I want to do more of my interviewing, maybe I've got to select, you know, three out of eight or whatever it is. Are there any particular traits or things that you found predictive of particularly good interview engineers?
1: Yeah, I mean the most obvious one and the most fun one is folks who like to interview, right? <laughs> they're the sure. ones who will be better because they they get the they go in, they're positive, they do a lot more preparation, they're highly invested in uh, in the interview itself, and uh, you know those are the folks you often see who bring all their coworkers into a room and say, hey, okay, how can we make this better? How can we make this a, a better uh, experience for our candidates?" That, that's first, um, you know we are highly selective uh, when we find interview engineers. We actually look in and measure their interpersonal skills just as, as heavily as their technical skills, um, which means we actually only end up hiring about one to two percent. But folks can train, you know, to be better over time. A lot of engineers are really actually uncomfortable with things that they haven't done before or they're not sure how to be measured for success. So, just like we you know, we're telling folks who are working with remote teams that, you know, success measurements are key so that people feel confident and comfortable in their jobs. Success measurements around the actual interview are are key so that inner, you know, engineers can feel comfortable and confident in doing those interviews. And so, you know, getting folks in, training them, having a clear rubric, understanding, you know, exactly what's going to be answered across a group of of engineers and how they're going to be measured and setting them up for success, usually we'll do the job in getting people to get into that interview room and actually do a pretty decent job.
0: Got it. And you mentioned testing for interpersonal skills. How do you test for interpersonal skills? How, how do you get a consistent rubric for that?
1: I don't know that you do. <laughs> you know, I, I think for us, it's it's really around the soft skills. How uh, you know comfortable can they make? Are they smiling? Or, you know are they excited or enjoying the idea of being an interview engineer? Are they? You know, we talked about this earlier. Are they easy to understand? Is there the clarity of speech there? Is there quality in their explanations? Because it's just as important for the interview engineer to actually have, you know, be organized and succinct as it is for the candidate, right? Comprehension, we talked about that earlier. Is it easy to understand the interview engineer, (laughs) right? And then of course, like I said, just, you know, folks who can keep it positive, who are really interested in being a part of, you know, someone being successful um, and their job being set up for success.
0: And then just to ask, because obviously there's a lot of disruption right now, are there any hints, given that you've been involved with so many interviews from the interviewer side and looking at it from that way, any advice you'd give to a candidate who is unfortunately currently looking for a new job and suddenly has to do a whole bunch of remote interviews, especially if they don't have a strong background in doing remote?
1: Yeah, I... I do. You know, we it's there are some really great best practices um, that, you know, you can follow at Care, What we do is make sure that, you know, candidates are of they understand what the interview format is, um, that they understand, you know, what they'll be assessed on. Uh, they'll understand, you know, the programming section. Right um that's the first part is is really if if you're not you know to be honest there's not a lot of companies right now that are used to having to do only remote so they may not necessarily have given you that information so always feel free to reach out and say okay great can you let me understand a little bit more about the format itself. Um, the second piece is that most likely you'll end up as a uh, candidate going into some sort of paired coding environment or environment. It's really important for folks to log in early and familiarize themselves with the tools that are in place. So if it's an IDE, if they're using something like a co- coder pad we built our own, it's called Carrot Studio. Uh, you know, what we do is we suggest and really push our candidates to go in, you know, play around with the IDE, get familiar. I mean, for programmers, we know this it's kind of like going in your friend's car you know you have to make little adjustments in order to be comfortable and the most important thing is that people feel safe and confident and comfortable to be successful um the other thing is you know familiarizing yourself with the id when it comes to things like auto brackets you know i'm not sure everyone does so just make sure that you go in and understand how the bracketing works and you know you will know, be able to change into the colors that you're looking for and play around with the language And then I would say the the third and final piece and what happened to, you know, worked well for me with Carrot in particular, was go out, there's a ton of, you know, sites out there that have coding exercises just to get your brain back in there, go do some coding exercises inside of the IDE, you know, play around with the tool, build, debug, and then going back in there during the actual interview, you'll have a, a lot less anxiety.
0: Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Peter. This is great.
0: This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.